This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is entirely too freaking early in the morning, dude. It's like 7.44 a.m., The 18th of August, 2020, this is episode 273 of Bitcoin, and I found out that doing any kind of online education for my children, uh, because, you know, we're not sure, we don't want to be idiots about it, we're not terrified or anything, but figured we could keep them out for the first six weeks, but now I think I just want to pull them out all together and homeschool their ass. Because I just looked at what it is that they'd have to do to do online uh, education for the uh, independent school district out here. And it just makes me cringe just thinking about it. Just the absolute devastation that this stupid freaking thing, this Rona, and the fear. It's not even the Rona itself. It's the fear that that has come along with it has done more damage and will be such of lasting damage to this country and the other countries of the world that is just, I don't know, man, this is like the most pathetic thing that I've ever seen in my entire life. So chances are real good. I'm going to get a lesson in how to homeschool kids. Never done it before, but dude, I just, I don't know, man, this is, this, this shit's just getting weird. It's just, I don't know. It's just too weird. Anyway, that said, uh, see, is there anything else? Let's do, uh, oh yeah, there's a fun fact. The Bitcoin.org domain name was registered on this day in 2008. That comes from Interdax. That would be at Interdax on Twitter. So that's kind of an interesting bit of history there. Uh, let's see. What do we got here there? Uh, oh, yep, yep, yep. Uh, Kalara Baneo. Uh, That would be K-A-L-A-R-A-B-O-N-E-L-L-O says, blows my mind that every time I go to buy Bitcoin, there is some sucker willing to sell it to me. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Unbelievable. It is actually unbelievable that there is suckers out there willing to sell. But in the exact same vein, it means that Bitcoin is the most liquid asset available in this new economy and the what and and what is what is to come it's so liquid it's not even funny there's always going to be some idiot that wants to go into shit coinery and will be more than willing to sell you their freaking bitcoin so that they can get cash so that they can go buy doge or litecoin or god forbid this shit show that is ethereum uh, it's amazing, but the liquidity is actually good news. The fact that there's so many dumb people out there, not so good news. Uh, also in the community, uh, it is happening, bro. Citadel21.com at CTDL21, the numbers 21 on Twitter, uh, says that this Friday, the 21st, so it's coming up, 
alongside the release of Volume 5 of Citadel 21, uh, we opened up orders for Volume 1 of the Citadel 21 physical magazine, final design sent to print today, limited to 500 copies. Make sure to snatch a piece of Bitcoin culture history. We're excited. So the guys over at Citadel 21 have sent their shit onto the printer. Oh, well, it's not shit. I mean, come on. This is a really good publication. And it's going to be, I'm really excited to see it in physical form. I am probably already too damn late to get one of the 500. So I, I may not very well be able to, to, to see it. But I'm excited and I'm excited for them because they made it happen. They're putting out a physical magazine which is just, I, it, that's so analog. I, I love how that the, the people in this space are like going back into like for, you know, like uh, earlier technologies and grasping those and pulling them forward. I love that because that, that kind of mix of technologies of old and new and future, I, I honestly think that that's the way it should be. I keep thinking of, like, I don't know, man. It's like I, I threatened to write a, a fiction book about, I don't know, like some kind of pastoral piece about, you know, I don't know, life on the farm or something like that. But embedded in that farm is like just sick technology. Like instead of just turning cattle out, you know, out onto the fields or whatever, there's like a, a I don't know, a, a team of drones that act as sheepdogs that keep the cows together so that they mob graze and you can go and take them from remote and put them anywhere you want simply because the drones annoy the cows while they're flying and annoy them to a new spot and then stop annoying them. You know, I mean like the, the marriage between the very, very, very old and the very, very, very new honestly, I think is the way to go forward. If we just leave all the old technology like physical magazines behind in the dust, we're not going to be better people for it. So go to citadel21.com, grab your uh, volume one, uh, Citadel 21 physical magazine, and uh, let me know how you like it because I, I wish I had one. Now, a story. It's a story from Sahil Bloom talking about an onion trader in 1955. If you didn't see this on Twitter, of course I do because I'm, I don't know, married to it, I guess. This is actually really interesting. In 1955, an onion farmer from New York made a fortune cornering the market for onions in the United States. By the time he was done, there were literally onions flowing through the streets. Vince Kasuga fancied himself as more than just your average onion farmer. He had a productive 5,000-acre onion farm in Pine Island, New York. But it was his side hustle, trading in futures markets, that would make him famous. Futures markets offered a way for farmers to hedge their risk. They could execute a contract to sell their crop at a fixed price at a later date, removing the risk of price fluctuations. But Vince was more interested in using futures for speculation. He wanted to get rich. After some unsuccessful episodes trading in wheat futures, Vince had a revelation. He knew all there was about onions, so he should be trading onions. He would pull off the greatest onion trade of all time. The idea was simple. He would corner the entire U.S. market for onions. Uh, executing against it was not. To pull it off, he would need to own the vast majority of all harvested or in-ground onions in the country, 
But Vince thought big. <clears throat> he and his partners began buying onions. They built secret warehouses across the country, buying and storing millions of onions. But this only covered harvested onions, which was just one piece of the market. So they began buying up futures contracts, essentially taking ownership of all U.S. onion harvests. By the fall of 1955, Vince Kasuga had a stranglehold on the entire market for onions in the United States. Most importantly, no one knew it. With this control, Vince Kasuga could move onion prices as he pleased. Now it was time to get rich. <laughs> he called a meeting with the VPs of the onion market, essentially telling them, I own you. Oh, sorry, not VPs, VIPs of the onion market, essentially telling them, I own you. He could spike or collapse the market on a whim. They had to comply. They agreed to purchase 9 million pounds of onions at a price he liked. But Vince had one more trick up his sleeve. That's right. He flipped and began making secret bets against the price of onions, shorting futures. What does this sound like? By spring of 1956, he had built a massive short position against onion prices. The trap was set. He emptied the onion warehouses, loaded up trucks, and flooded the entire market with onions. With massive truckloads of onions arriving at the futures exchange all at once, the price of onions began to plummet. No one wanted to get stuck with all of those onions. The trucks dumped their loads. There was literally onions flowing through the streets. The price of onions collapsed, falling to 10 cents per 50-pound bag, less than the price of the plastic bag they were in. Vince cleaned up. His big short on the onion market had netted him $8.5 million, the equivalent of $82 million today. Not bad for an onion farmer. The outcry against Vince Kasuga was massive. A lot of people had been hurt by his market manipulation, but it was unclear that he had done anything illegal. He had his trading license suspended for 10 months and was forced to pay a small fine, but his legacy would live on. In 1958, President Eisenhower would sign the Onion Futures Act, which banned the trading of futures in the onion market. To this day, onions are the only agricultural product specifically outlawed in this manner. And so, the legend of Vince Kasuga's onion coup lives on. Sell, sell, sell! Yep, sell, sell, sell. That's almost exactly the same play. Exactly the same play that Goldman Sachs was doing on uh, oh, the uh, CDO contracts and whatnot during the whole two th run up to the 2008 collapse. It's almost the exact same thing, man. It just goes to show times may change. Generally speaking, people don't. That's going to do it for the community news. All right, boys and girls, we have this one from Lee Kuhn. Bitcoin DeFi may be unstoppable, but what does it look like? It was written yesterday for Coindesk.com, and I'm reading it first out of the gate because of the whole DeFi mess and the fact that, like the onion farmer story before, times and technology may change. People don't. If, it can, if, if DeFi can be put on Bitcoin, and I guarantee you it can, then it's going to go on Bitcoin, except it's not actually going to be going on Bitcoin. Well, let's just see what Lee has to say about this. One of the quietest yet best-funded Bitcoin companies in the world is gearing up to enter the 2020 decentralized finance bull run. In July, the DG Lab, that's Digital Garage, 
conglomerate, which like Ethereum powerhouse consensus includes both an investment arm and an adjacent software company, open sourced its proposal for self-sovereign derivatives trading on the Bitcoin blockchain using the Lightning Network. These contracts turn Bitcoin, the asset itself, into programmable money capable of a wider variety of functions. This offers a stark contrast to the typical DeFi approach so far, which relies on wrapped representations of Bitcoin or exchange on or exchange platforms. Sorry. The Silicon Valley startup C-Labs recently acquired DeFi firm Suma, which spearheaded the Bitcoin on Ethereum approach. Now it looks as though DG Lab, founded in 2015, is the leading incumbent exploring DeFi opportunities for Bitcoin. Quote, I've been working on a proposal to integrate DLC, discrete log contracts, and channels into the Lightning Network, DG Lab researcher Ichiro Kawahara said of his recent work, quote, we can establish many contracts without broadcasting transactions on the blockchain. Ah, this should be fun. The software uses the Lightning Network to execute business logic without clogging up the base layer blockchain. The hottest trend among Bitcoin veterans these days is imagining DeFi functionality applied to the Bitcoin currency through such layers. No, it's not. There are many opinions on how to approach this opportunity from DLC to soft forks. Now I'm going to stop right there and say I'm not excited at all about the DeFi scam trend hitting, hitting Bitcoin. I, I'm just not, okay? The only thing that is even of remote value here is the fact that they're looking directly at the Lightning Network because they know that you cannot scale a main chain. And I don't give a shit what chain it is. It could be Doge. It could be Litecoin. It could be Ethereum. It could be Ethereum Classic. It could be EOS. It does not matter. It just does not matter. You're not scaling those chains, not without second layer. So here we are. We've got Ethereum clogged up. And the very first thing out of the gate is, maybe we should use Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. And of course, it's like a big duh. But I don't want it. But what I want doesn't really matter now, does it? Because we're probably going to get it. Not everyone agrees on how to use Lightning for smart contracts. Bitcoin veteran Jerry Rubin, Jerry Rubin, who launched his Judica startup this summer, believes Blockstream's Liquid Network, which, which companies like Crypto Garage use to experiment with such smart contracts, overcomplicates the construction. Quote, I think we can do it much simpler. It's solvable on chain, but can be done in lightning channels as well, Ruben said in an interview explaining how his proposed Bitcoin soft fork could optimize the base layer for smart contracts. Quote, I can construct this contract, which is a derivative, without you being online. I can make a valid contract and then email it to you, end quote. These days, both ends of a lightning transaction need to participate at roughly the same time for the payment to go through, or at least both need to set everything up in advance. Ruben is arguing there's a way to make it so one party can execute a consensual transaction. Public keys allow the other party to see whenever they come online, proof of everything about the deal. Quote, it's this notion of flow and conditionality that doesn't currently exist in Bitcoin. These 2020 DeFi projects are about helping define, uh, define commutes. What? Let me do this again. These 2020 DeFi projects are about helping define commutes a sequence of steps that can happen based on choices along the way, end quote. There are enough engineers working on DeFi options for Bitcoin that one of them might technically work, even if socially it doesn't catch on. Only time will tell which ones find product market fit and how that may or may not spur crypto adoption. Stepping back, the DeFi bulls at DG Labs 
fund raised over $93 million in 2019. And according to the firm's blog post, are raising a second fund in 2020. The fund invested in DG Lab, the separate namesake startup, which simultaneously attracted investors from Japanese enterprises, including the e-commerce giant Kakaku.com and the telecommunications provider KDDI. Meanwhile, the DG Lab fund itself invested in River Financial, Arwen, Blockstream, and Curve, to name a few, in addition to startups in adjacent sectors such as AI and security. Quote, we have several startups that are working with DLC. For example, Shared Bits is one of the key players in this field, and we are working closely with them, said Shanichi Kimuro, probably butchered, senior manager at DG Lab Fund. Quote, we wanted to show what is possible using the Bitcoin protocol by using our peer-to-peer derivatives. Ah, derivatives. <clears throat> Yet another startup called Crypto Garage, in which DG Fund did not invest directly, is using Blockstream's liquid technology to explore this type of smart contract software. Quote, you define the outcomes of your contracts and create a transaction for each of the outcomes, and it can only be unlocked with one of the outcome transactions or with mutual agreement between the contract participants. Crypto Garage engineer Tibu Lagui said in an interview, Ruben pointed out that even if he disagrees with Lagui, on certain aspects these Bitcoin projects have much more in common with each other than with Ethereum DeFi projects. Ah, oh, see, we're different, but the same. Quote, there's a really big gap between DeFi as Ethereum is trying to do it in P2P finance. Uniswap is really great, but they tokenize their liquidity pools. We Bitcoiners are talking about finding a way for people to work directly with each other, Ruben said. Bitcoin DeFi projects aren't using representatives of Bitcoin. They want to enable traders to do tasks directly with Bitcoin. Quote, there are about 20 people in the Bitcoin community working on tools, applications, and specifications for discrete log contracts, including assured bits, Laguli said in an interview. Traders don't have to involve an exchange. It appears as though Ethereum DeFi advocates offer a different interpretation of decentralization than their node-obsessed Bitcoin brethren. Bitcoin advocates are focused on every user being able to participate in the network by running their own full financial stack. I like that term, full financial stack. Good job, Lee. I'll give her that one. While Ethereum fans are more focused on the ability to offer their services from any data center center around the world. Oh, God. Bison Trail CEO Joe Lauz said his infrastructure startup can easily move accounts across borders thanks in part to a distributed team. This, from his perspective, is a slightly decentralized step away from Silicon Valley norms. Quote, if Amazon said you can't run nodes, for example... We can very quickly and seamlessly move our infrastructure to other cloud providers, he said. Everyone at the same time would have to say the blockchain network is something we don't support across the internet, end quote. Whatever the hell that means. While Ethereum DeFi experiments attract quick flashes of capital, losing considerable sums as advocates iterate, Bitcoin DeFi experiments seem comparatively modest, yet veterans know not to underestimate the Bitcoin development scene in Tokyo, home to the creators of self-sovereignty experiments, including BTC Pay and DG Labs. This period may just be the calm before the perfect storm. Quote, once there are enough people to create a real market, we might offer services or tools we can monetize, <coughs> Crypto Garage's Laguli said. At this stage, our goal is to raise awareness about what can be done with Bitcoin. Yeah, and if it stayed that way, I'd probably be all right with it. But basically, you're just going to bring scams to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. And that's what's going to happen. 
and it, it, it just doesn't matter how good hearted you are. There are so many people out there that just don't give a shit. They don't, they can sleep at night after, I don't know, killing puppies. I, I'm serious. There are people out there that do not care. They will take your money and they will not even think about it. They don't even, re- they won't even remember the names of the people that they stole from. They don't give a shit if it's a granny, a small child, a puppy. It doesn't matter to these people. And that shit is probably going to come to the Lightning Network. And honestly, I wish there was, but there's nothing that we can do about it except to continuously raise the alarms about scams. Even if they're on the Bitcoin network, you need to stand up and say, no, that, that's a scam. Don't, don't do it. For the love of God, please don't do it. Well, it seems that a wave has washed ashore. $243 million in Bitcoin transfer turns heads as one of the wealthiest crypto whales on earth awakens. A huge Bitcoin transaction is causing a stir. A big-time anonymous crypto holder just moved all of the Bitcoin in one of the richest wallets in existence, sending 19,722 BTC worth more than $243 million for a fee of 139 bucks. Of course, this is this is out of the Daily Hodel, guys. So as you imagine, it's the Daily Hodel staff writing it. And it was, in fact, published this morning. So this is this is a whale song today here. The sending wallet, which first received the Bitcoin back in December of 2018, was ranked as the 37th largest BTC address in the world prior to the transaction. According to the latest blockchain data, the whale moved the Bitcoin to an empty BTC wallet the receiving wallet then redistributed the Bitcoin to a flurry of different addresses in 195.2 BTC chunks with the exception of one address, which was sent an even 200 BTC. So far, the cryptocurrency does not appear to be heading to any known crypto exchange addresses where it could be sold on the open market. Since none of the addresses have been identified, it's unknown if the BTC belongs to an early investor or an institution managing large sums of Cryptocurrency data from the crypto analytics firm Glassnode shows the number of Bitcoin whales in existence has been on the rise since January, hitting a peak last seen in September of 2017. So there's your whale sign, and that's a big one. $243 million in, in 19, was it 19,000? Damn near 20,000 BTC is the same kind of movement that, um, what was it, MicroStrategy their buy of $250 million of Bitcoin, which was something like 21, a little over 21,000 Bitcoin. This is a huge, huge movement, but I mean, does it worry me? No, no, it it never worries me. I I mean, Bitcoin's going to Bitcoin, but I'll tell you one thing, man. Could you imagine hitting the send on that transaction? $250 million and you've got, and it's being done by a mouse, or well, maybe not a mouse, maybe just a CLI interface. But at one point or another, you're going to hit either a mouse click or a single button, and that $250 million just goes away. And no, I, no matter how many times I make a transaction, it always freaks me. I mean, if it's 20 bucks, I don't worry about it. But if it's like, I mean, if I'm sending like, you know, like 400 when I bought my ticket for BitBlock Boom, and I'm sending like 400 bucks across the wire. I'm like going, ah, I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter my confidence level. I'm always going to get kind of freaked out. But $250 million, 
damn, dude, you got to be on par with Dave Portnoy to do that shit. And Dave Portnoy has taken a 180 on crypto and has begun shilling shit coins. Ah, Felipe Arazo is writing this one for Cointelegraph sometime yesterday. Following his recent educational foray into the world of blockchain, Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy now appears to be promoting crypto pump and dump schemes by shilling low-cap altcoins. Who would have guessed? Posting a number of videos on Twitter, Portnoy stated that he had found a new altcoin that I'm interested in, but wouldn't disclose which crypto it was yet. He reasoned that he didn't want people to buy it before he did. He later tweeted that he had diversified some of his crypto holdings into the altcoin Orchid, which he referred to as the shitcoin OXT, adding that orchids never die. Portnoy expressed an interest in, a, in crypto pump and dumps, noting that it's encouraged and can be done all day long. Satoshi Flipper, a crypto influencer known for his analysis, warned people to be very careful with Portnoy's words because he doesn't know anything about crypto. The Barstool Sports founder recently posted a video of his meeting with Tyler and Cameron Winklevi, or Voss. The founders of Gemini Exchange, the twins met with Portnoy, apparently in their rowing costumes, in order to explain Bitcoin in a way that he would understand. And of course, they immediately started shilling shit coins and, and like they got him into link and they started talking about crap being built on Ethereum. And I mean, honestly, if, if it wasn't for the fact that I know that I, I, I kind of, it's not that I know, I got a gut feeling about Dave Portnoy and all this. I'll talk about it in a second. But if I didn't know better, I'd say that he never had a chance by asking Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss to, to come and do this for, to him. But I do, I, I have a gut feeling that Dave Portnoy does know better and that he's just, he's, he's going to use this as a platform. I, he's, he may be interested a little bit in, in cryptocurrency, but I guarantee you the dude's got enough money to have a bit of fun. And one thing that I know about Dave is that he seems to like having a bit of fun, but, uh, let's, let's do this one. The road to Bitcoin hegemony. Obi Nawasu is the CEO and co-founder of CoinFloor. Okay, so, and he is writing this one for BTC time. So let's get into it. Oh, when did he write this? No, yesterday. Welcome to the road to Bitcoin hegemony, a weekly analysis of the most important developments in Bitcoin and why they matter in Bitcoin's journey towards monetary dominance. This is the column that he writes for BTC times. I don't know how many times he's going to write it because BTC times is brand new, but... Hopefully it'll be long. Uh, I, I kind of like the guy. We often talk about Bitcoin as if all the hard work had been done already. And from a technical point of view, that's mostly true. When it comes to maturity, resilience, stability, and community support, no other cryptocurrency comes close. But there is one big issue that still looms over our industry. Adoption. Sometimes it seems like we're on a mission to convince each individual consumer about the benefits of Bitcoin things like the ability to be your own bank and hedge against disasters in the traditional financial system. As an industry, we've had some notable successes in this regard. Just look at the number of over 55s, the most financially savvy of all the generations, who now hold Bitcoin. But we still have a long way to go before Bitcoin achieves universal acceptance as a sound investment. This is why the recent MicroStrategy announcement that it is investing $250 million in Bitcoin is so significant. Let me explain. 
the most important thing about MicroStrategy's announcement is that this is a company with no prior skin in the crypto game. They are not evangelists, nor are they investing because they believe Bitcoin will bring about a better world. MicroStrategy's own statement said it all. For them, Bitcoin provides a decent hedge against inflation and the prospect of earning a higher return than other investments. Their move into Bitcoin is motivated purely by sound financial planning and being the world's largest independent publicly traded business intelligence company, it's obvious that they've reached this decision after doing their due diligence. MicroStrategy must have known that their decision would make waves, being the first billion dollar company to tie its valuation to Bitcoin, but it shouldn't be a big surprise at CoinFloor, we are seeing well-known brands, including those with no background in crypto, finance, or even tech, starting to make inquiries about making significant Bitcoin transactions. But how does this affect adoption? Well, as Nick Chong points out in his recent article, MicroStrategy's investment means that its major investors, among them BlackRock and Vanguard, as well as their millions of customers, have all indirectly gained significant exposure to Bitcoin. As the market expands beyond its core demographic of technology, crypto, and financial insiders, a trend that is set to increase dramatically over the coming months, we can see the beginning of a new route to its normalization and widespread adoption. Our industry still needs to focus on evangelizing for Bitcoin and demonstrating the unique benefits that the currency can bring to ordinary users, but when major corporate, sorry, when major corporates adopt Bitcoin, it represents a powerful endorsement that for the uninitiated and consequently acts as a huge force multiplier for further adoption. I predict that we will see more companies like MicroStrategy making the decision to make significant investments in Bitcoin over the coming years. This will be an essential part of Bitcoin's ascent to global hegemony. At CoinFloor, we're often asked why we decided to delist Ethereum and concentrate solely on Bitcoin. Even those who accept that Bitcoin is streets ahead of its rival in terms of technical maturity are puzzled that we turned our back on a cryptocurrency that has been adopted by so many. Poor guys. There are many reasons for our Bitcoin-only focus, but one of the most important is the brilliantly simple concept core to its value proposition. We know exactly how many Bitcoin have been issued and the maximum that ever will be. <clears throat> you certainly can't say the same about Bitcoin's closest challenger. At the time of writing, the total supply of ETH on the Ethereum network is yet to be conclusively determined. <laughs> this should be a big problem for Ethereum. And a member of the Bitcoin community has even put up a bounty for anyone who can develop an auditing script that can tell us just how much Ethereum is in circulation. And I believe that's Pierre Rochard, I'm pretty sure. But hang on, say the Ethereum evangelist, it's unfair to make comparisons with Bitcoin because the two cryptos are powered on very different philosophies. Bitcoin is digital gold, a commodity and high powered store of value. Ethereum, meanwhile, was never meant to be money and is more akin to digital oil, whose most valuable use is powering a range of smart contracts. Here's the thing, I agree with them. Ethereum in theory, <clears throat> would that be Ethereum? I don't know. The whole thing's a theory. Has many exciting potential uses, but a replacement for fiat currency is not one of them. I've written about the competing philosophies of Bitcoin and Ethereum for some time now, but ultimately it's Bitcoin's killer app. It's finite and transparent supply. That means it will always beat Ethereum as a store of value, although one of my Twitter correspondents put it more pithily than I ever could. Yeah, I won't read that one. 
The, the problem is that Ethereum continues to be touted as a competitor to Bitcoin, something it was never really intended to be. If you don't know the original intent behind Ethereum, the clue's in the name. It was supposed to be an ether or gas that acted as a medium for decentralized applications. Even then, this use case also has significant risks that aren't shared by Bitcoin, and perhaps the greatest risk for Ethereum is obsolescence. Smart contract creators can choose between multiple and in many cases, technically superior alternatives to Ethereum. That presents a big problem for Ethereum as an investment. Ethereum needs smart contracts, but smart contracts don't really need Ethereum. Ethereum is still the dominant force within smart contracts, but more sophisticated competitors may chip away at its hegemony. Ethereum is like coal. It Powered an industrial revolution and was the preeminent fuel for decades, but has gradually been replaced by better forms of energy. Like coal, Ethereum's dominance could quickly decline as developers find better alternatives. Worse still, these crypto fuels will be easier to switch to due to smart contract cross-chain interoperability. So there you have it. Let the arguments about supply gate rumble on. It's the modern day equivalent of debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. For us, we much rather concentrate on backing crypto's real winner, Bitcoin. All right, so that's it. Uh, I, like I said, I like Obi. There's a couple of things in here that, eh, yeah. It is important for the Ethereum guys to figure out how much Ethereum there is. It's not a philosophical question of, of angels dancing on the head of a pin. It is an important question. It should be answerable. If it is never answerable and it's only always ever going to be relegated to a philosophical angels on heads of pins questions, then honestly, just like that philosophical question, what's its value proposition? There is none, right? Also, <clears throat> the whole thing with coal and oil, and I mean, I, I get what he's going for, but this is sort of like the same, the, I bring it up because it's the same argument as uh, the next big Bitcoin. I mean, the next big smart contract platform, okay, is sort of for Ethereum is sort of like, as far as money is concerned and our, everything else, it's like the next Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the next Bitcoin. I mean, and I'm not saying that he's wrong that something else could replace Ethereum, but I'm not really looking out for that. You know, the, what, what my, my the working theory is, that if anything at all were to ever be actually the next Bitcoin, then it itself immediately fails. And I, I, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about here, but the trust in everything is destroyed because the, if, if that were to ever happen, the very second that happens, I'm out, I'm done, I'm gone. I mean, I'm, I'm really, well, no, I'd probably wait around and figure out if the next Bitcoin was actually you know, had like massive adoption or whatever, but I don't think it will because a lot of people are like me. They'd be going, okay, at this point, I don't know where to put my money. I don't know, I don't know what to do. You know, I, it, it just, it, it screws everything up. If, if it happens to Ethereum, I don't give a shit, but it's the only thing that I really care about here, of course, is Bitcoin, except that I will talk about Monero. Because a Monero botnet steals AWS logins for crypto jacking. This one by Sharuja Malwa. I am always going to butcher that name. Writing for Decrypt.co sometime early this morning, hackers are stealing Amazon Web Services credentials to deploy a new crypto jacking botnet, according to a report by Cato Security. 
a UK-based cybersecurity organization this week. AWS is the e-commerce giant's cloud computing division. The firm said that the malware operation is the first instance of hackers targeting Amazon tools to steal web credentials for crypto mining purposes. So far, over 119 systems have been compromised, according to the security firm. The bot it has itself been active since at least April and was deployed by a cybercrime group called Team TNT. The attack only recently started targeting AWS logins, said the report. Cato Security said that hackers had, oh, I'm sorry, that hackers used exposed files containing plain text credentials and configuration details for the underlying AWS accounts and infrastructure as part of the attack. This allowed them to tap into Amazon's extensive and powerful computing resources to mine Monero. The botnet infects a system's Docker, a software tool to deploy applications to infiltrate computers that run on top of or use the AWS infrastructure. Once compromised, Team TNT gangs uh, scan for exposed user credentials and other data copies and uploads both files onto a server that they control. Then they install a Monero mining botnet and get to work. Cato security researchers noted the attacker has not yet used many of the stolen credentials as of August the 17th, but that doesn't mean the threat is averted. Nevertheless, when the attackers decide to do so, deploy the attack. Team TNT stands to seriously boost its profits, said the report. Quote, this is either by installing crypto mining malware and more powerful AWS clusters directly or by selling the stolen credentials on the black market, it said. At press time, the attackers have siphoned a total of three Monero, about $300, on the two known wallet addresses connected to various victim computers. However, Cato security researchers said hackers may have made many times more as they control thousands of wallets. The attack joins another similar cloud computing-based attack that sees hackers using meme coin, Dogecoin, to keep their botnets running. Ah, Doge. Gotta love the Doge. Let's run the numbers. Get ready for the meh. Yep, markets are pretty... Meh. I'm, I don't know. I guess I guess you can get excited about the S&P being 0.08% to the downside, losing 2.9 points to, you know, have a last at $3,379.09. But meh, meh. NASDAQ is up 0.17. Dow Jones is down a third. FTSE's down a half. Nikkei's down one-fifth. The Hang Seng is up meh 0.08 shanghai is up a third the volatility index is the only thing that's banging right now it's actually up two points to the upside all the bonds are down except for the german 10 year it will now cost you only 0.448 percent to hold that lousy son of a bitch and oil well west texas intermediate down a point a percentage point to 42.49 nat gas rallying again 3.55% to the upside gives us $2.42 per thousand cubic feet of natural gas. Gold topped out over $2,000 again. It's up 0.8 to the upside. Its close or its last was $2,015. Silver banging away 2.2 and a quarter to the upside. 28.28 was its last. 
you want to know about wheat? You can buy a contract for 517 bucks. I don't know how much wheat that is. It's probably a lot. Let's talk about actual money. Bitcoin. Well, we're down. Oh no. It's probably a BART formation. If you don't know what a BART formation is, I can't help you here. Uh, 12,203 is going to be my low. Nope. That's actually not my low. Bitstamp has it at 12,187. And I got, uh, let's see. Yeah, it looks like 12,203 is my high. So real tight trading range between all the uh, exchanges that are reporting the price. 326,000 transactions were made over the last 24 hours with about 13,600 transactions being made on average per hour. And yet again, two and a half million BTC changing hands over the last 24 hours. That is 104,000 BTC being sent around the horn on average per hour with an average transaction value of 7.7 BTC and a median transaction value of 0.05, which is about 600 bucks. We have a fairly large increase in the amount of time it takes to mint new blocks. Blocks are those things that contain all the transactions and shower the people that find the block with 6.25 Bitcoin plus all the transaction fees that they get. We have 11 minutes and 10 seconds. We got one BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and 130 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We've had almost a damn near a 10% decrease in hash rate, bringing us down to 113.16 exahashes per second. Ethereum at 427, Bcash at 305, Litecoin at 64 and a half. BSV at 221 and a half, Ethereum Classic at seven and one third, Dogecoin slipped 0.0035, but with 55,000 transactions, it's, well, it, it, it takes care of Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, and Bcash as usual. Spike in BSV traffic, we've got, I'm looking at 826,000 weather transactions. If you don't know what I mean by that, the vast majority of BSV is being used to literally confirm the information from weather stations. I know it's weird, but because they have are mining this data, they're able to actually look like people are using it, but it's just weather data. It's odd. I know. I get it. But what else do you expect from that clown show? Clark, Moody, Bitcoin. We've got the the mempool. I keep doing that. Whatever mempool Clark Moody's looking at has 39,000 transactions waiting to clear. And that will take 32 full blocks to clear all those transactions. His price, wow, his price is 12054 So apparently we just now had some slippage. I'm just going to go check TradingView and see what it says. Yeah, my trading view is uh, showing Bitstamp's got a price at 12029 So we're pretty much looking, I don't know, it took too long to be a full, full-blown full BART formation, which is the shape of the head of BART Simpson, just so you know now. But still, like, so all those gains that we got that took us up to, what, 12000 almost 12500 have been wiped out over the last, well, not all of them. Some of them. We're still above 12,000. Whatever. Okay. So, uh, Lightning Network stuff. What do we got? 989 Bitcoin are in the uh, Lightning Network. 
That's about $12 million of liquidity across 7,362 Lightning nodes, representing 36,510 Lightning channels. Tor capacity fell a tenth, 45.6%. We have 451.21 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning network, and that's over 2,168 nodes. There's your vitals. Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. I want to remind everybody that if it's not Bitcoin, well, it's not going to be a Citadel. Akon is ready to build a $6 billion cryptocurrency city. Corey Hale writing it for Forbes.com. I don't know, sometime this morning, I suppose. Akon City, a futuristic cryptocurrency-themed city founded by music mogul Akon, who I have never heard of before this, is ready to begin construction in Senegal after securing $4 billion from investors. That's billion with a B. The city will exclusively use the A-coin, a digital currency, and plans to have parks, universities, schools, a stadium, hotels, and more. Why would you want more than one university in one city? That's a little stupid. It doesn't work all that well, guys. This is not Sim City, where you just throw up a whole bunch of colleges and universities and shit like that. It, it does not really work all that well. Okay, I'm just from a whatever. Okay. It will be the de facto currency in the Senegalese city he's constructing on land donated by the government. Will cryptocurrencies become the tool that puts African nations on the path to overcoming their economic challenges? I don't know. Acoin is now part of the nearly 1,600 cryptocurrencies trading around the world in an industry with a market capitalization of more than $267 billion. According to CoinMarketCap, the digital currency was originally announced in 2018, and Culture Banks reported that along with his team, they plan to build a whole ecosystem around A-Coin. Uh, that's A-K-O-I-N, if you're keeping count. Including construction of the city and initiatives to support young entrepreneurs. Quote, A-Coin is a cryptocurrency powered by a marketplace of tools and services fueling the dreams of entrepreneurs, business owners, and social activists as they connect and engage across the rising economies of Africa and beyond. You better put a tie on that suit speak, according to the project's website. Now, that's that's just suit speak. It's all bullshit, okay? That's You hear anything like that from anybody if they start spouting off mission statement and all that kind of crap, just check out until they're done because it's all bullshit. More than 60% of people in Africa are under 25 years old, unbanked, and rely heavily on mobile phones to do pretty much everything. This means Acoin could really take off across the continent since six of the 10 fastest growing economies are in, in Africa. Really? Nice. In 2034, Africa is expected to have the world's largest working age population of 1.1 billion people, according to the World Economic Forum. Forum. I think she put that in twice. Well, whatever which also projects that the continent's consumers will spend $2 trillion by 2025. Is that per year or is that going to be in total? I wish they'd... I wonder. Many African governments have expressed skepticism about the visibility of cryptocurrencies. Zimbabwe's Reserve Bank banned banks from processing digital currency payments only for the country's high court to reverse the order. South Africa's Revenue Supply Service recently published guidance on how it would tax cryptocurrencies, sparking debate about their classification. Kenya's central bank has slow-walked issues, regulations, 
Yeah, sorry, I'll let Kenya's central bank has slow walked issuing regulations on cryptocurrency. Good for you, Kenya. All of this skepticism relates to concerns these countries have about the riskiness of digital currencies and the potential for people in these countries to lose money. While it may seem far-fetched to some people, integrating blockchain technology into city building has been gaining traction in recent years, though none of the projects have been successfully realized yet. Time will tell whether other cryptocurrencies like Acoin will bring stability to African economies or leave consumers wishing they had kept their money in traditional currencies. Acon, sorry, Acon, the guy, joins a host of other celebrities involved in cryptocurrencies. For example, NAS is an investor in cryptocurrency trading platform Coinbase. The game is on the advisory board at Paragon, a cryptocurrency startup tailored to the marijuana industry. Acon's city phase one is expected to be completed by the end of 2023. It will include road construction, a Hamptons hospital campus, a Hamptons mall, residences, hotels, a police station, a school, a waste facility, and a solar power plant. Phase two will run from 2024 to 2029. Will you be visiting? Probably not, dude. I got a bad feeling about this. I, I'm not sure if, a, I, I mean, I'm not saying that Akon is, is out to scam anybody, but I don't know, man. $6 billion, that's all. Uh, and again, I, I got to reiterate, before this entire thing broke, because we knew about Akon and Acoin back in, I don't know, like last year? is when the name first started kind of hitting my radar. I had no idea who the hell this brother is. I've never heard of Akon. And yet he's a media mogul. He's apparently really famous and just scoops up $6 billion. I don't know, man. Smells fishy. But fish never smell in space because space chain signs Bitcoin multisig transaction in space. I wonder if Hodel and Knott's behind this one. Liam Frost is doing it for Decrypt.co sometime this morning. Decentralized Space Agency Space Chain has executed a multi-signature Bitcoin transaction on the final frontier, according to a press release published today. The researcher sent roughly 0.001 BTC, worth around 122 bucks currently, to two Bitcoin addresses. To achieve this, Space Chain used, uh, sorry, used specialized blockchain hardware on board the International Space Station, or the ISS, developed by nanosatellites manufacturer GOMSPACE, that's G-O-M-S-P-A-C-E, to transmit the encrypted data through a ground station to the ISS. Multi-sig transactions are mostly the same as regular ones, but they require several signatures or approvals to be executed this results in increased security as well as the ability to create shared wallets that can't be accessed by just one user. Quote, executing the multi-signature transaction in space encapsulates our continuous efforts in building out an open source blockchain-based satellite network that is secure and immutable, said Jeff Garzik, the co-founder and CTO of Space Chain, adding, oh God, I, for, I totally forgot he was part of that group. Space Chain aims to be one, the one-stop solutions provider for the integration of blockchain and space. Okay, the reason that I stumbled over that is if you don't know who Jeff Garzik is, you really kind of got to go back through the history of Bitcoin. But I'm just going to say this. He's not a good actor. He is not a good actor. He's not, he's not at all a good actor. 
Just I'm just saying, be very skeptical of anything this cat does. Still, though, multi-sig on BTC in space is kind of cool, but I don't trust that dude as far as I can throw him. Supported by the European Space Agency's Kickstart Activities Program, the project ultimately seeks to build new space-focused products and use cases for digital banks and fintech companies in the future. Quote, this milestone has built momentum for the use of space systems and services in the commercial market, and we are excited to further integrate our innovative technologies to help space chain achieve its goals in space and beyond. Suit speak. Telling you, man, suit speak. As Decrypt reported, Space Chain sent its blockchain hardware wallet technology to the ISS aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket last December. After activation, the payload was used to determine the receipt, authorization, and retransmission of multi-signature blockchain transactions transactions on the Qtum and Ethereum blockchains. Now it has added support for Bitcoin, taking it one step closer to the moon. Uh, Ethereum in space makes me kind of... Whatever Bitcoin is now bigger than Bank of America and the New Zealand dollar by market cap. Turner Wright is writing it for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. As Bitcoin gets more support from first-time investors, its market cap has risen past Bank of America's market valuation, putting the leading cryptocurrency within striking distance of PayPal. <laughs> Gee, who would have guessed? According to asset dash data at the time of writing Bitcoin's current market cap sits just over $226 billion, having risen 3.2% in the last 24 hours. Meanwhile, Bank of America's market cap has fallen more than 2% today to $224 billion. That This bullish behavior from Bitcoin and slight drop in BOA means the analytics site ranks BTC as the 25th most valuable asset by market capitalization just behind PayPal at $230 billion. However, Bank of America was not the only fiat-based institution to fall behind the crypto asset today, which reached a yearly high of $12,470. Fiat Market Cap, a site that tracks BTC's rise against major fiat currencies, states that Bitcoin's market cap now puts it ahead of the New Zealand dollar. <laughs> <laughs> First, they laugh at you, and then you get smoked. Bitcoin is now ahead of the site's estimate for the total number of NZD, or New Zealand dollar, in circulation at $346.4 billion, or roughly 227 million U.S. dollars. This would make Bitcoin the 34th most valuable of all the fiat currencies in the world. Bitcoin's price has grown substantially. In 2020, as the Federal Reserve has pushed many controversial measures to lessen the economic impact of the pandemic, promoting prominent figures to finance in finance to consider crypto for the first time, while billionaire Warren Buffett has made his feelings on cryptocurrencies well-known, saying that they basically have no value, others such as Morgan Creek Digital's Jason Williams have predicted that Buffett's multinational conglomerate holding company Berkshire Hathaway could invest in Bitcoin soon. Oh, that'll, that'd be interesting. Williams said that Young managers and analysts at the firm would make the decision to buy BTC even if Buffett were unaware of their actions. Okay, I don't think that's in the cards there, pal. I, they'd have to actually get a vote on that, I'm pretty sure. I, I don't think you can just go do shit like that without getting the axe. Buffett isn't the only billionaire to potentially consider crypto as a way to hedge his bets in this economy. Paul Tudor Jones 
The founder of Hedge Fund Tutor Investment Corporation is also still bullish on Bitcoin since revealing the crypto asset was part of his portfolio in May, and that would be anywhere between 1% and 2% that Paul Tudor Jones owns in Bitcoin, in case you're wondering what that number is. Another possible new face in the crypto world is, oh God, Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy, who recently spoken with, spoke with Gemini Exchange founders Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss. With the assistance of the twin brothers, Portnoy purchased $200 in Bitcoin and $50,000 in some shitcoin, some of his very first crypto purchases. So there you go. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so let's... Let me pause and just think about this for a little bit. More of a, a market cap than the New Zealand dollar, the entire country. You know, they always point at us and, and yell at us because we're using too much electricity. We use more electricity than all of Switzerland. And that's what makes Bitcoin more valuable than all the money in New Zealand. It really is just that simple, folks, and it's just going to get worse or better, depending on how you're looking at the situation. I wonder what a lawyer has to say about things. Uh, he's explaining why regulators might not come after DeFi. Oh, why? Because they're like horribly understaffed? I don't know. Decrypt.co's Shaura Malwa, I'm butchering it again, is writing this one sometime today. Hundreds of millions of dollars bundled together in an obscure altcoin might just escape regulatory consequences because of their inherent structure. According to an attorney focused on the blockchain space, Colin Belton, managing director of legal firm Brookwood, said true DeFi projects present a different legal issue for lawmakers compared to ICOs. With the latter's centralized operators and issuance of security-like tokens largely absent in the DeFi space, Belton said regulators look at two points before assessing any business or transactional activity. First is holding an identifiable organization or operator liable for a crime. And second, avoiding any legal costs associated with violations. Quote, they take selective action against visible targets with hopes of making examples and preemptively deterring future violations. This lets them leverage up, so to speak, said Belton. But in the DeFi space, for the good or bad, both of these issues are absent. This makes them a difficult target, which is not the regulator's primary focus, said Belton. An example, or rather an example, is Yearn Finance, the yield farming DeFi project, which is wholly governed by community members, the Wi-Fi token holders, or rather shitbag holders, and thus has no single operator to catch hold of legally speaking, even if project founder Andre Krunji is its face on social media. This means regulators cannot swoop down on urine finance, even if it somehow undergoes a catastrophe affecting the millions of dollars locked in its liquidity pools. Quote, asking him, Cronji or whatever his name is, if he's bankrupt might be salacious and interesting to some, or salacious, not salacious, salacious or and interesting to some, but Wi-Fi will continue working in its current form regardless of his finances, noted Belton. He added, so while I could be wrong, I think people expecting regulatory action against some of these experimental, no pre-mine, no upgradable style projects are probably going to be waiting for a while, end quote. But that's not to say all DeFi projects are in the clear, especially those who slap DeFi as a buzzword on every conceivable application. I thought that was all of them. 
Belton said the so term decentralization flirts or projects that or projects that maintain critical infrastructure off chain and whose founding team control the majority of tokens are similar to ICOs. Quote, arguments for normally regulated acts in DeFi are often well, we don't control this system, but off-chain infrastructure gives regulators potential counters, he continued. Meanwhile, stablecoins find themselves on the same side, legally speaking. Permissioned stablecoins are also much easier for regulators to attack, especially where many custody funds in banks, said Belton. However, for now, there's no such imminent threat or legal discussion. But while stablecoins are at risk, new age digital farming might just be beyond the regulator's grasp in more ways that, than one. I'm going to agree to a, going to agree to a degree. There's always going to be somebody who slips up <clears throat> and they, people are going to go to jail over this. They are going to lose all their money. It's going to be bad. You know, it's like I, we can bitch and moan and cry about how governments just need to poof and go away, but it's never going to happen. So you might as well get used to the fact that if it's not going to happen, they have guns, you don't have as many guns, and if you get in their crosshairs, it's going to be bad. And there's going to be a lot of DeFi projects that go down. And they, I mean, they're still, they're still not even close to scratching the surface of the iceberg that is the ICO markets from 2016, 2017. It, I mean, they have, I mean... They have at Department of Justice and FINRA and all these places, they have what's known as filing cabinets. And it doesn't matter if the guy that put the first file in there dies, you know, after 40 years, they're going to come after you because it's in the damn filing cabinet. They will find you. They will hunt your ass down. It's just going to suck for all the people that started a bunch of DeFi projects. It won't be all of them. Clearly, I, I do agree with uh, this particular uh gentlemen on on the on some of these points but of course not all of them now the last thing to say about it is the fact that he he echoes something that i say for a long time about how all the icos and now you got defi in the mix they all act as a blade of armor for bitcoin as the as the army that is federal government or whoever wants to come, you know, the federal government is some other government, whoever wants to come after this shit as their army marches forth and starts blasting away and wasting their ammunition. All they're going to be picking off is the little guys, the little ICOs, the little DeFi projects and any idiot that they can find. And by the time it's all said and done, the only thing that will have happened is that they will be low or out of ammunition and Bitcoin will basically own the tanks that they're driving because that's the way it's going to go. Grayscale opens trading for Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin Trust with $30 million in assets. Yeah, I just wanted to do that so that you would know that Grayscale is, is never going to stop shitcoining. I'm not going to read the story because I don't care about Bcash or Litecoin Trusts. But I do care about the fact that Barry Silbert of Grayscale fame is never, ever going to quit shitcoining, right? And neither is Brian Armstrong from Coinbase, and neither is CZ out of Binance, and neither is Arthur Hayes. These guys are going to continue doing what they do, and they're going to make money until they stop making money. And at one point or another, if any of these shitcoins 
If, if all the stupid people in the world finally run out of all their money, then and only then will these people stop trading in shit coins. Last thing on the list is rather sad. Game show winner loses $40,000 in Bitcoin Facebook scam. This is August the 18th for Coindesk written by Sebastian Sinclair. It is a bullet list again. It's not a full article, so bear with me. According to a daily record, which is a newspaper, I guess, report on uh, Tuesday, Scottish retiree Graeme Grerarch was defrauded of 30,000 pounds or $40,000 by a phony investment company. The former railway worker who appeared on Deal or No Deal in 2017, nope, nope, 2007, clicked on a Facebook ad from a company called OMC Markets. Interested in investing ahead of his retirement, Gerach agreed to invest after speaking to a company representative who claimed they were in London but were actually based in Bulgaria, according to the report. He deposited a total of $38,090 U.S. into a Bitcoin wallet and signed a waiver denying him access to his funds for six months. The scammers also convinced Garak to give them access to his bank account, supposedly so they could make Bitcoin trades on his behalf. After doubling his money, Garak tried to pull out his funds in March of 2019, but was told he needed to pay a further £6,000 or $7,800 in fees, to which Garrock complied. Shortly after Garrock's funds were completely drained and OMC Markets ignored Garrock's email requesting demand for explanation, quote, Facebook needs to do more, Garrock said, who was planning on buying a house with his investment earnings. You cry inside. Facebook needs to get a handle on this shit. And YouTube as well, because they're, they're shutting down, they're shutting down like accounts for legitimate Bitcoiners who are just doing education. Um, Adam Meister is a good example who lost, for two and a half months lost his YouTube account. He doesn't ever give you a, a clickable link or something where you can go invest in something. He does not do that. And as far as I know, he never has, and I don't think he ever will. Yet his shit gets shut down. Yet there are a plethora of YouTube channels that are straight up scams and the same shit's going on on Facebook and they'll let that through. But legitimate educators in this space that actually know what they're talking about, no, they get their accounts pulled. What the hell's going on? That's going to do it for the morning round. Daily Train Wrecked, brought to you by Vitalik Buterin, who, by the way, is, I think he's about, I don't know, seems like he's about to crack. He's been, he's been saying shit all day long uh, this morning, or not all day long, but this morning and, well, yesterday, I guess so it is all day long, um, about, I don't know, the, the, the way that he's wording things, and this is all spawned from the Peter McCormick uh, Samson Moe, Vitalik Buterin back and forth or debate, I, I guess is what it would be called. And it, I don't know, man, something seems to have shaken Vitalik because he's making some fairly critical errors, pretty much a lot like this one. Um, it says, well, Vitalik writes yesterday, by the way, I should also add that it was Bitcoin that originally enabled ICOs, not Ethereum. After all, 
What platform did the Ethereum ICO happen on? I like what uh, Brecky Von Bitcoin has to say about that. He says, what platform did it happen on? Are you freaking kidding? ETH was pre-sold for BTC. That's it. Saying what you just said is like saying dollars enables terrorists. It's a currency. What you use it for is on you, Vitalik. Grow up. I honestly believe that Vitalik is cracking. I really do. I, I think that I... I I don't see how, honestly, I don't see how he can continue. The Rube Goldberg machine that he has built with all the gears and whistles and lights and shit that doesn't do anything has only done one thing, and that's enable. I'm not going to say terrorists. I should, but I'm not going to. It's only enabled ICOs and scams. Well, ICOs are scams, so one and the same. But you, you get my picture. And the fact that, I mean, I could have given like, I don't know, let's say that I was an early whale or something like that and had like, you know, thousands and thousands of, of, of Bitcoin laying around. And I was asked to invest like 500 of them into, I don't know, scam chains, auto body shop. We're going to put auto work on the blockchain. Sure, man. It's like, you just like digitize your car and, and we'll hammer out all the dents and we'll spit it right back out to you. Clearly, a stupid ass scam, clearly, has nothing to do with Bitcoin. The same can probably be said for Ethereum itself, that just because Ethereum is there and somebody used it to create a scam coin, then it's not really Ethereum's fault, except that's all it does. If I mean, if there was like some kind of credible thing that has fallen out of Ethereum, that'd be something, but I haven't actually seen a project that is worth a damn. And 90% of them are scams. Whereas the stuff that's being built on Bitcoin are actually more about the infrastructure, you know, watchtowers and the lightning network, the liquid side chain, which utilize, you know, you have to have the Bitcoin chain to enable any of this shit. And I don't see anything really being built on Bitcoin except for better infrastructure. Whereas the only thing I really ever seen built on Ethereum are scams. Lots of them. Like we're talking about thousands at this point. The 2017 ICO boom was wholly enabled by the scam chain that is Ethereum. It was wholly enabled by that. <clears throat> you know, what are you going to do with these people? God, anyway, there's your smoldering pile. And lastly, we have your normal terrible joke. This one, however, is not pinned by me. We're going back to Dad Says Jokes for this one. You know, and Dad asks a, a really good question here. What's the leading cause of dry skin? Towels. Yeah, yeah, that was short, sweet, terrible, just like I like them. Um, okay. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to start making some statements about uh, what the show is going to look like because the whole kids having to be online for school, if I am not you know, able to escape that, 
that most likely will, it'll be hell is what I'm saying. And I don't know what it looks like, you know, because they got to be online. It's not like I got a house filled with computers or anything like that. So I don't know if I'm, if I'm going to be able to do this where I cut it in the morning and have it out in the morning, I may have to do something like cut the show at night and then have it out, you know, late at night so that on the, you know, when the sun rises on the East coast, if I got any listeners out there, it'll be ready for the morning, but it won't have the morning news. It will have like last night's news. And I, Totally understand that that kind of sucks. I like giving the freshest news possible, man. I, I don't like the whole stale stuff, but it may just have to happen until I figure out how the hell to extricate ourselves from this entire, the entirety of all the nonsense that has occurred since, what was it? I'm going to say the very start of the year, January 2020. It's been eight months of just pure unbridled, unfettered nonsense. I mean, again, I'm not saying that the disease is fake. I'm not going to put that tinfoil hat on. I'm just saying that the world's response to this, in my opinion, if it hadn't have been for all the social justice bullshit, not to say, okay, I'm not saying that cops should be free to, to beat up and kill people. I'm not saying that it's right to deny somebody employment based on the color of their skin. I'm not saying that shit, but we've always known that that stuff is true, right? But the narratives that have been wrapped around it for the last, my God, what we're going, I think it's like we're going on five years of 100% total full tilt weirdness like and i think i think that the meme of that chick wearing yellow sitting down and waiting until they announce donald trump as president before she screams and if you know the meme if if you've been alive for the last few years you've seen that meme i think that's the marker i really do i believe that that was the meme marker that denoted the difference between all the SJW stuff and the, the fear and the loathing and the, the pittiness and the victim stuff and the whatever shaming and all that crap, that was the marker between then and now. And all the same stuff exists, but it's been so much more cranked up. And I think it's because of that, that the world's governments and populations and financial institutions and everything else. I think that that has, is what has caused this overboard reaction to this entire thing. And it's going to destroy so very, very much a lot more than it would have had this pandemic pandemic broken out in say 1995. It would have been a completely, completely different landscape. But we're not there. We're right here. All we can do is figure out what the hell we're going to do with what we have at the time we have it. So I'm just warning you. Things may be really weird for this show for the next, I don't know. I just don't. I wish I could tell you, but I can't. So with all that said, I'm just going to let it go right there. And I will see you on the other side. 
This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.